Well, good morning again, and it is a joy to be able to be able to open up the Bible with you. Right? This is the time during our service where we simply like to, to crack open what is, what is our foundation as a church, and that is the Word of God. And so if you guys could, um, go ahead and grab one of those, whether if you have your own or you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles that are sitting around the room, and open it up to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 is where we're going to be. If you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 980, 980. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible, um, or maybe don't have the translation that we use, the English Standard Version, feel free to take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. Now, last week in our text, uh, we finished up chapter 1. We finished up chapter 1. Now, in case you're visiting or, or you're just new to the church, uh, one of the ways in which we study the Word together is we simply walk through it line by line. And so right now as a church, we're walking through the book of Philippians. So last week, we just finished up chapter 1, and I am jumping into chapter 2. And we're going to just be looking at those first four verses of chapter 2. And last week, we saw Paul begin this argument, begin this discussion of what does life in the gospel look like? Now, I compare it to, in my own life, when I grew up, there were certain things that I did because my last name was Worko. Now, many of you guys have um, challenged me that I don't have to be a Packer fan um, if my last name was Worko, but you guys did not meet my dad, okay? I had that, that conversation was very early. If I wanted to live anywhere near him, let alone in his house, there was, I had to be a Packer fan. But the point was that what does life in the gospel look like? What does it mean to bear the name Christian, right? If you have come to an understanding that Jesus not only lived for you, but died for you and resurrected and is currently ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father, what does that mean? What does that mean then practically as a Christian? What does it mean to live life in the gospel? And as we look through the end of chapter 1, I believe that we saw... Um, all of these things which Paul is encouraging his church to do, such as having one mind, striving like athletes alongside each other, right? Trying to be good defenders of what we believe is true and right in Jesus Christ. And we also talked about how Paul, at the end of chapter 1, even talked about how life in the gospel looks like you're going to suffer. That, that Jesus may grant you suffering for his name. Suffering for his name. Now, suffering, although difficult, hard, right? What I pointed out is suffering in this life, Christian, is not somehow the world thwarting God's purposes for your life, right? To be a Christian is not just rainbows and unicorns. Rather, what the Bible teaches us is that it's going to be really hard. It's actually going to cost you a lot. But why is that? Why is that? What happens when the things of this world seem to, to lose their, their, their foundation? What happens to a Christian then? Well, you begin to cling to the things that's unmovable or unchanging. Things which you actually can hold on to. And for the Christian, that's the solid rock in which we stand. That's the hope of the gospel. Now, <clears throat> truthfully though... I think those words are still pretty hard to swallow. That if we, if we were to take the, you know, the end of chapter 1 seriously and say, okay, that means you're saying that the suffering which maybe I have in my life 
If that is a gift from God or been granted by God, what am I supposed to do with that? How in the world could any type of suffering be a gift? Right? We, we, I, I struggle with that. I struggle thinking that somehow things not going in the way that I want them to go in this life could be a good thing for me. But the longer that I've been walking with Jesus, the longer I've been walking with Christ, the more I see that when those things do happen, I get more of him. I get to trust him more. I get to depend on him more. And I think that's why Paul brought it up. But I want to point out from the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, when he's discussing really what it looks like to follow him and what it might cost you. Look at this from Mark 8, 35. It should be on the screen. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Will save it. So so what is Jesus saying in that moment? He's saying, it's going to cost you. It's not going to be easy. It's going to. It might cost you everything which you know, but in the process, you will get more of him. So life in the gospel will be difficult at times. Now, what our attention is going to be focused on today, and you can see, I know I didn't change the title, I just called it Life in the Gospel Part 2, more just because that's showing you the limits of my creativity, along with, now Paul is going to be shifting to, okay, what does life in the gospel look like to the household of God? What is, we talked about what it looks like to a watching world, but now what does it look like inside these walls or inside our homes? What does bearing the name of Christian then actually look like to those around us or to those that we're walking alongside with in it? And I think this is an important, incredible passage in those first four verses of chapter two. But as always, I'm just going to stop and I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray for you. But I ask that as I'm doing that, that you would simply pray for me. So let's just go ahead and take a moment of prayer again. Well, Father, I want to just, just stop and speak to you before we dive into your word. I've got to pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would allow just the truths that these four verses represent to just be illuminated in the hearts of everybody in this room this morning. God, whether we're coming here having a, a good week or a bad week, whether we know you or we don't, or maybe it's been a long time since we've been in church or not. God, I pray that you would allow these words to be timely. God, I pray for our kiddos. I pray for the teachers as they instruct even just the little hearts, the little minds in which God has granted us, that you would encourage them this morning too, that they would be able to see just the hope and the truth and the promises of of you, Lord. And God, I pray that for each and every one of us, we would walk out of here simply loving and trusting you more than we first walked in. And I pray all of that to your mighty name. Amen. Amen. All right, let me go ahead and just read that text for us this morning, and then we'll start walking through it. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it reads, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Church, that is the word of the Lord. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. That's why we say that. 
All right, so as I've already mentioned, <clears throat> Paul has been laying out these stern realities and what does life in the gospel look like? What does it mean to walk with Jesus? Or if we go back to verse 27 of chapter 1, what does it mean to walk in a manner that shows the worthiness of the gospel? What does it look like to reflect that in our life? That's what Jesus is going to be, or Paul is going to be pointing to us in Jesus too this morning. Now, really quickly, if you were to jump down to verse 3, is when Paul actually begins to pick up these instructions that he has for this church that he's writing to. Right, you can see that when he says, do nothing from selfless ambition, or maybe your translation says rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Now that's instruction that Paul is giving the church. But I want to point out that Paul doesn't just go there, though, right? He's been instructing the church, and it would have made a whole lot of sense to me if Paul just continued with his instruction at the end of chapter 1. But why did he take a moment in verses 1 and 2 to, to, before he gives instruction to remind us of something, right? To remind us of what? Remind us of our encouragement, our hope, our love. He takes a moment, to remind us of who you are. And this is really important, church. This is really important. I love this about the Bible. And I love this about Paul. Is the Bible, whenever it gives instructions on what does the Christian life look like, it always grounds it in who Jesus is. Because simply, what you do always flows out of who you are. So if you don't understand who you are in Christ, doing the right things will make no difference. That's just simply moralism. That's not what we're about. Now, certainly, we want to respond then to what Christ has done. But Paul, and I love this, he's going to take a moment and he says, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember something, family. Like a good dad who wants to get his family kind of back on the same track, gets them all in the living room and says, you know what? We need to watch something. We need to look at something together. He takes out that home movie, right? Puts in the VCR. Remember those? Right? Remember these home movies? He puts that home movie in the VCR with all the kids surrounded around, and hits play. It's like, I want you to remember who you are. Remember your identity. And so let's look at this. I think what this whole movie, basically what Paul is getting at in verse 1 is these four scenes, these four areas in which Paul is redirecting us back to, said, look at this, look at this. And what does he say in verse 1? This is scene 1, to use that, that illustration of a movie. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, so he has a question, is there any encouragement in Christ? Yeah, yeah, there's a whole lot of encouragement in Christ. There's a whole lot of encouragement in Christ. Because, in, by the way, to be in Christ, that's the language of being in communion with somebody, to have relationship with somebody. So he's, he's saying, hey, do you remember what you're a part of? Do you remember who you're in, in communion with? Do you remember the encouragement that comes with that? Because what would that encouragement be? It, well, think about, there, there's likely a day for you, Christian, that you can remember that you did not have encouragement in Christ. That there was a day that you were dead in your sins, right? Enslaved to the passions of your flesh. You were only capable of doing the things that simply felt good or felt right to you in the moment. That you were enslaved to those things. But what happened? God happened. God decided to do something about it. God, through Jesus, came and lived the life that we could not live. 
Even when we were dead in our trespasses, Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't live with utter perfection, right? Never having that blood guiltiness as which Tim talked about in Psalm 51. But yet, what did he do with that perfect life? He went and bore the punishment of blood guiltiness by being crucified on a Roman cross, by taking our sins and dying in place for them, being our substitute, atoning for us. Because as, as Tim mentioned in talking about this, the punishment for sin, God has to punish sin because he's a just God. He can't say, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to let it go. No, he had to do something about it. But instead of killing us, which we deserve for what we have done, Jesus said, no, take, I'm going to take their place. I'm going to take their place on the cross. And he died for, in our place for our sin. So there's encouragement in that. But it's not also what the gospel t- tells us. The gospel also teaches us that not only did God die for us, but then he actually adopted us. He said, I'm, I'm not just going to atone for you, but I'm actually going to start calling you sons and daughters. You're going to be part of my family. You're going to be part of my family. So you are in Christ now. Your life is hidden in Christ. Paul even talked about the end of chapter 1, that this belief has also been granted to you just like suffering. That it was given to you. It was a good gift from a, a, a rich in mercy God. So that's scene one. We have encouragement in Christ. But what's scene two? Is there any comfort in love in Christ? Church, do you remember the day that you understood that Christ died for you and it wasn't because you were lovable? That Christ died for you not because he just had to die for you because you were so great in everything in which you've done in your life, but Christ died for you because he loved you. Not because you were lovable, but because he loved you. And that this was part of the plan of God from the foundation of the world that he was going to save sinners like you and I. Do you remember that day? Do you remember the comfort in remembering that day in which you understood that Christ died for you despite you? That even, as the Bible says, that when you were an enemy of God, when you were still an enemy of his, that's when he died for you. Or think about even maybe since you were a Christian, those, those days in which, to be honest, you backslid, the days in which you did not trust Christ, you did not trust this new reality, this new identity that you had in him and, and decided to follow or pursue things besides him and his glory as your ultimate identity or ultimate worth. We all have those days. Maybe some of you are in those right now. But if there's any comfort in the love of Christ, what do we have? Well, we have the love of Christ because God is a good God who loves to welcome his prodigal son. One who, the moment that you acknowledge and you see that your sin is, is only going to bring you destruction and death. And you go, I don't have anything to offer God. I have, there's no way that I can earn back his good grace, but I'm just going to turn and I'm going to turn back to him. I'm going to trust him. And what do you find? you find a good and loving God who before you can even get the confession out of your mouth, you are embraced and overwhelmed by the grace of this God. If there's any comfort in love, in that kind of love. Or scene three, what what else does Paul say? If there's any participation in the Spirit. Church, do you know? Do you remember in which you have not been abandoned to pursue or follow Jesus on your own. That if there's participation in the Spirit, it means that when you believed and you trusted in Jesus, that God did not say, hey, good luck. I hope you, you figure it out. But rather, he knew that we couldn't figure it out. And so he sent his Holy Spirit 
to indwell in the, in the heart of every believer. And that, the Bible actually says you're sealed with that Holy Spirit, meaning that, that it's a down payment for the life everlasting in which, which you will have with Jesus in the end. But this participation in the Holy Spirit is not just this, this confirmation of what's to come, but also what you experience here and now. That this participation in the Spirit has given you the ability to actually want to follow Jesus. Do you remember that? Do you remember that the day when all of a sudden you didn't want to sin in the way that you once did? Or simply it wasn't as enjoyable as it once was? That's participation in the Spirit. Or maybe you found yourself actually having the ability to fight sin. To say, I don't want that for me anymore. I don't want to pursue that anymore. I want to follow Jesus. That's participation in the Spirit. Or the ability to, to read your Bible and feel like I'm not just reading words written 2,000 years ago, but I'm hearing the actual Word of God. That's participation in the Spirit. Maybe it's just the one who's been transforming you more and more into the image of Christ. When you look back, maybe you've been walking with Jesus for I know for some people in this room, it's upwards of 50 years. And you can look back on your life and say, man, I am nowhere where I once was. But it wasn't because of me. It wasn't because I was awesome. It's because the Holy Spirit has been at work in my life, transforming me more and more into the image of Jesus. That's participation in the Spirit. Is Paul saying, do you remember that? Do you remember that? And then lastly, scene four, if you will, is there any affection and sympathy in Christ? Is there any affection and sympathy in Christ? Now, this is an important one, church. Do you remember the days then, maybe when you felt worthless, when you felt like you had absolutely failed as a husband, failed as a wife, failed as a father or a mother, as a son or a daughter, you know, maybe a, an employee, an employer, that you absolutely failed in that realm. And you felt worthless in that moment. But do you remember that it was in that day when, when Jesus said, no, 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 no. Your worth is not in those things. Your worth is in me. Your worth is in what I have done for you. And even though that you can fail in those things, it doesn't mean that you don't strive to be excellent in any of those roles. But those roles don't define you. I define you. I'm the one who gives you purpose. I'm the one who makes you wake up in the morning. Or maybe the days where you felt the affection and sympathy of Christ when you simply experienced unbearable suffering. Maybe unbearable loss. Someone you thought that you would live the rest of your life alongside was no longer there no longer there. And even though you couldn't understand why, you couldn't understand maybe the timing, you couldn't understand how it happened, you were able to feel the affection and sympathy of Jesus saying, just trust me. Just trust me in this moment. You see, church, you can never look back on Jesus too much. You can never look back onto him. You can never look back on the gospel too much. You know, I've only been walking with Jesus for about 12 years, 13 years now. But there's never been a day where I haven't needed to be reminded of where my hope is. And I hope that's the case when I've been walking with Jesus for maybe 60, 70 years, if God grants that to me. 
but you can never look back on Jesus too much. And I think Paul knew that. He knew that about himself. He knew that about the Philippians. He knew that about us. And so before he goes into this instruction of more of what does life in the gospel look like in the household of God, he's saying, but do you remember the gospel? Because you can't live life in the gospel if you don't know what that is. So Paul is encouraging this church, allowing this foundation of identity simply to be a reckoning in which we all need every single time we open up the word of God. What a foundation. I think it'd be worthy for me to stop there, but I know that you guys don't like how, how fast I'm going through this book already. That's only one verse, and I don't know how long we've been here, but, but we're going to keep going. But I want you to remember that foundation, because that's where Paul has us. So verse 2, then he says, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord of one mind. So with the that gospel backdrop, he then says, then complete my joy with that. If you remember those things, if your life is founded upon those things, driven by those things, it's going to complete my joy. And why is that? What is Paul trying to get at? It's going to complete his joy because what is, what is Paul's greatest joy? It's the joy of Jesus. It's the joy of Jesus being known and proclaimed. In fact, Jesus himself would pray this about wanting us to have his joy. And the only way that we could have that was if we had one mind, one unifying purpose. Let me show you this from a prayer that's recorded in the Gospel of John from Jesus himself. It's John 17, verses 22 through 23. Sarah, I think we have that. Thank you. Where he says, The glory that you have given me, this is Jesus speaking to God the Father, says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So what is Jesus saying? What is he praying for? He's praying that his disciples would be unified because of what he has done, because of who he is, that they'd have one mind, one mind, one uniting purpose, one single goal, just like the Trinity does. And that's the glory of God. So Jesus says that he's praying that the world would know his message based off of how we're coming together underneath it. Let me show you this again from the words of Jesus. If you don't believe me, John 13, where he says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the household of God. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when Paul is saying in, in Philippians 2.1, or 2.2 rather, when he's saying, complete my joy, he's saying complete my joyful mission in life. Allow the joy that I have by seeing Christians being united under the banner of grace just flood into my own heart. You know, Paul's been talking about joy a lot. He will as we continue through this book. But here's the only portion where he takes joy and he's separating it from Christ a little bit. And he's saying there's a special joy that I get when Christians are uniting themselves under the message that binds them all together. There's a joy there that can happen in the household of God when that's taking place. Because here's the truth, and I think we all have experienced this. 
unfortunately so, that when the message of the gospel gets so twisted, gets so confusing, it usually happens when Christians start arguing over dumb things, right? Now, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand on this. But I'm sure <clears throat> that even in a church our size, right, even in a small church like this, that many of you, maybe firsthand or, or secondhand experiences, have felt the pain of a church imploding or splitting over something dumb, over something dumb. I know I have. You know, there's, there's a, unfortunately, there's some really dumb reasons why churches have split. Churches have split over certain instruments being used or not used on Sunday. There have been churches that have split over where a certain bench is placed in the lobby. Churches have split over what color the carpet is. Churches have split over what happens at church barbecues when one person doesn't get the same amount of food as the other. Now, I find this very timely since we had a church barbecue yesterday. And I was secretly praying, God, please have everybody have the same amount of ribs. <laughs> so no church split would happen. And thanks be to Ken and Sharon who supplied enough ribs for everybody and all the more. And unfortunately, and we laugh at that, but we laugh at that kind of uncomfortably because we also know that those things are true. And we felt the pain of just dumb arguments being so twisted and, being, and allowing just the, the hope of the gospel, the mission of the church to be so muddied. And what happens when that, when that takes place is, one is Christ's name is dragged through the mud because non-Christians look back and say, oh, I guess the color of your carpet's what's most important to you. And even more so, Christ's bride, which is the church, is discredited, is discredited in its community, and a wake of hurt is usually left behind. And so Paul knew this. He knew this church, because if it was happening now, it also was happening back then, because the human heart's always been the same. And he knew this, so if you look at verse 3, what does Paul say? What does Paul say to this church? He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit, but in humility count more others more significant than yourself. So here's when he starts moving into the practical aspect of living life in the gospel. He says, so I have something for you. This is what I want you to do out of rivalry and conceit. This is what I want you to do out of selfish ambition. And what is that? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. If you remember back in chapter 1, Paul actually put on blast these guys who were preaching Jesus out of rivalry and conceit. And how it was tearing him up. He was, he was still thankful that Christ was being preached, but he says they are preaching out of rivalry and conceit, and it's hurting the church. It's hurting the church. So how do we then fight this? If this is common, and by the way, Paul would not have written this for all time and all places if it wasn't true of us today, that we can be tempted in this. So what, what's the remedy here? What does Paul say then? What do we do? What are we supposed to do? If, we're not, if this is what we're not supposed to do, then what are we supposed to do? He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So you fight against pride. You humble yourself by looking to others instead of just always looking at yourself. Let me show you this from a quote from John Stott. He's a, a theologian. 
And he writes this in his commentary on this passage. He says, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. What is Paul saying? Or what is, what is John saying in quoting Paul here then? He's saying, never take your eyes off of fighting pride. Never take your eyes off of fighting pride. Pride was that original sin that we found in the garden. It was pride that said, you know what, Lord? I don't think I need you. I don't think what you've told us to do, to eat of this, not eat of that, I don't think we actually need that. I think I know what I need better than you. That's pride. And it's the pattern which we all have been participating in. And Paul is saying, Christian, even you, fight against this. And how do we do that? Well, we then we count others more significant than yourself. Because if you're looking constantly to others, you have a hard time constantly looking at yourself. So Paul says, look at others. Or as he goes down in verse 4 and expands, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what Paul is saying is what living a life in the gospel or living a life showing the worthiness of the gospel will, will play out in how you treat one another, will play out in the culture of a church. Because is your church a, a safe place then to put pride to death? Is a church a safe place to say, you know what, I need to take what I want and all the needs that I have and put them in relationship to what does this church need or what do these people need? Am I looking to others? Or think about it, is, is this a safe place then to be honest? Because in a, in a, in a pride-driven church, it, there won't be. It will not be a safe place to be, to be honest. Is it a safe place to be vulnerable? Is it a safe place on Sunday to walk in these doors and say, I don't have my life together and have brothers and sisters inside these walls saying, yeah, I know, welcome, you're in good company. Let me, let's walk together to the throne of grace. Right? This is so important, church. And, and to try to put some brackets around it, this is gospel culture. This is gospel culture. So Paul had already talked about gospel doctrine. What do we believe? What do we know about Jesus? But then he's saying, what you know about Jesus, truly, it will show up in the culture of the place in which you're at. We'll show up then of how you then treat one another. Because you can all day say, yeah, it's, it's by grace alone I'm saved. It's by grace alone that I fight against sin. It was by Jesus and Jesus alone I am where I am today. But then never expect that from somebody else. Or to say to somebody else, it's up to you. Get to work. You see, what you believe about the gospel church will always show up in how you treat one another it will so we want to treat people like they matter because they do in our homes we want to treat people like they matter because they do that we're concerned about others that you're concerned about yourself paul's not saying that you know you have to become an, an eeyore christian you know you're just kind of sad all the time like woe is me but you are not the most important person in your world. And I know that's hard. I know it's hard for a lot of us. 
right? Even this whole phrase of verse 4, let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. That is such a foreign concept in our culture, it's not even funny, right? We don't, it's like speaking a different language for most of us. What do you mean to treat others as more significant than myself? What do you, could you possibly mean by that? You see, the church expanded not only through the preaching of the gospel and the radical regeneration of the Holy Spirit, but culturally, it stood out because it was altogether different than what the rest of the world has ever seen. That was true in the first century as it is now in our century. That radical otherness or radical centrality to who God is and to how I want to treat others is just as radical today as it was for Paul. And so he's saying, you want to live a life in, in the gospel? Start looking at others. Start valuing others. Gospel culture. Gospel culture. Um, even the, if you were to look at that word in verse 3 where it says count others, count others more significant than yourself. I just want to point out that's an intentional word. That it means that it might not come naturally or all of a sudden just show up, but rather like somebody counting coins or counting money. That's the language that Paul is using, that you are intentional in it. It doesn't just randomly happen, but you sit down and you say, I want to count. I want to think about others and I want to count. How can I serve them? How can I look at their needs or their interests and say, how can I step in? How can I step in? That's, that's the culture of the gospel. That's humility. You know, there's a popular definition of humility that says that, you know, humility is not necessarily thinking about your, yourself, but thinking about yourself less, which is, there's, there's some truth to that, that it's not, you know, it's not just stopping thinking about yourself, but I think what's, what is probably more biblical is saying humility is thinking about others in relationship to the gospel. I can, and I can assure you of this, is the way that you think about others will tell me a great deal about what you believe about the gospel. It will tell me a great deal about what you believe about the person and work of Jesus. Was he needed? Was he not needed? Are you pretty good on your own? You don't really need him. You maybe just tack him on, right? Some fire insurance. That's not the gospel, church. That's not what Paul is encouraging them to remember and believe and embrace. But let's keep going. And so at the end of verse 4, when it says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I just want to point out, maybe just a practical way that this happens, right? One of the ways, because there's a lot of ways that this can happen inside the church. But I just want to let you guys know one of the ways that it happens here on Sunday is I hope you know this, that there's a host of people that get here early, that set up the church building, that help make coffee, that learn songs to play for us, that make sure that the rooms are clean and disinfected, that make sure the carpets are vacuumed, that make sure our kids are going to be learning about the gospel just as much as we are in this room. Do you know why they do that? It's not because they have nothing better to do at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. Many of them would love to sleep in. But they're here for others. They're here to serve others. They're taking their own, oftentimes their only day off during the week and saying, you know what? I'm going to serve others. Now, that's not the only way that you can live out verse 4, but I just wanted to point out, 
It's a way that many Christians in this room do it, to which I am so thankful for. I'm so thankful for. And I know that, you know, I can't tell you guys specifically on how this looks like for every, every one of you. But I, I trust through that participation in the Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, then you desire to live this out. You desire to show the worthiness of the gospel in this area of your life. It could all boil down to what Jesus told us of what is the greatest commandment. Do you remember this? When they asked Jesus, hey, what's the most important thing that we can do, Jesus? What's, what's the best thing that we can do? Do you remember his answer? He said, and it's really a summary of, of, of the Old Testament law or the Shema, but he says, I want you to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and then do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, living life in the gospel is just living out that. But where does that foundation come from? Do we do that to get anything from God? No. We do that because we know him. We do that because of the foundation we have in him. Because we all know we don't do it perfectly. That if it was really up to us to love God perfectly with all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, we have utterly failed in that. But yet, what Jesus did through his person and his work, what Paul said in verse 1 is still true. So church, if you have any encouragement in Christ, if you have any appreciation or comfort in the love of Christ, if you have any participation in the Spirit, if you have any sympathy or affection in Christ, then we can embrace these things. Because that's true. Because that is true. What a gift that is. Oh my goodness. Well, before I pray, I just want to uh, take a moment. Just is If you're not a Christian, um, and by the way, you're welcome here. We're not going to try to do anything weird to you. You know, I know that you're doing weird things by standing up and singing with people that you don't know. But if you're not a Christian one, thank you for coming. Um, I hope this is a safe place for you to, to, to answer, um, hopefully get some questions answered. But I want you to know that everything in which we remembered is something that we want for you today. And the only way that, that could ever happen, the only way that 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 encouragement, that comfort, that affection, that participation in the Spirit could be true of you is if you realize that you need Jesus just as much as everybody else here in this room. And I would encourage you to turn from your sins, repent of them, and turn to Christ. Believe that He is not just a Savior, but also Lord. To bow your knee to His good and gracious throne. And what a gift that is. And you can join us as we celebrate that. Well, let's go ahead and just stop there and let me pray for us.